I shared with you last week about how each year I ask God to give me a specific word or statement to kind of serve as our central focus throughout the year. And that word for this time around ended up being the word surrender. So we were given a challenge and an encouragement last time we were together to live surrendered. And the first installment of that helped us step towards surrender by realizing the one thing that matters, which is the gospel and our obedience to share it. And I hope that message from this past week, for those of you that were here with us, has resonated within your heart and within your mind that only one thing in this life matters, and that's the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and our obedience to go to all nations and proclaim to them the good news of what Jesus has done to reconcile and restore broken and desperate sinners like ourselves. It's the only thing that matters. I was sharing with some of our young adults last night, actually, and it's just here recently, God has given me a renewed fervor and passion to share the gospel and to reach lost souls because we are getting closer and closer to the day when Christ will return. And whether or not you have bowed on this earth or not, you will bow one day and proclaim him as Lord. You just need to make sure you do that while you still have time for him to accept you as one of his sons or his daughters. But tonight we move into the second installment. And the challenge and the encouragement is still to live surrendered, but it comes with another realization that we need to have. And we find that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, God's word says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So let's talk for the next few moments from the subject of the one life that matters. Turn to someone around you and tell them, one life matters. One life matters. Last week, one thing mattered, and that was the gospel. This week, one life matters. Matters. If you were to Google search, how do I make my life matter? In less than one second, that search engine would render for you 2.77 billion results to your question. An almost endless number of books, articles, blog posts, journal entries containing various thoughts and or advice on how you can make your life matter because people, whether they want to admit it or not, want to matter. They want to have purpose. They want to make an impact on this world while they are here. But listen to me, only one life matters. That life is found only in Jesus. One more time. Only one life matters. And that life is only found in Jesus and being surrendered to him and live for the glory of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is life. The life. Like the life. There is no other life apart from Christ. And I share with you last week, so many of you, you're out there and you're probably living life. But Jesus came out that, that you may have life and have it abundant. There's a difference between life itself and abundant life that Jesus gives. And that's the message of the gospel. And that's what I hope none of you leave here this week without knowing the abundant life that Jesus 
gives. So in Acts chapter 20, we met Paul. At the beginning of him living and committing to a surrendered life. And all he cared about was not valuing his own life, but finishing the course that Jesus had set him on, and that was to proclaim the gospel. Now here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we encounter the same man, Paul. But he's at the end of his life. And he's speaking to a young man named Timothy, who he had poured a lot of his life into. And a lot of water has gone under the bridge since Acts chapter 20. And Paul's reflecting on his life in these moments. And his reflections give us insight into living the one life that matters. So this life particularly, I want to show you four specific things that are included with this life that matters. So this life is one that fights the right fight. If you look in the first half of verse 7, Paul, as he's speaking to Timothy, getting close to the end of his life, says, I have fought the good fight. So as he nears the end of his life and he reflects upon it, he says, I truly have fought the good fight. And this clues us into something important that I don't want you to miss in all the other details. It, it tells us there is a good or a right fight to be involved in. But there's also a bad or a wrong fight for us to engage in as well. And listen, this is so important. The fight that you choose to engage yourself in impacts eternity. For the good or the bad as well. So it is very important that as believers we become aware of the good fight that we should be fighting because it has an impact on eternity. And I think one of the best tactics that the enemy has in his arsenal is getting believers to battle in wrong arenas. Some of those arenas may even be good moral things. They may even be for equality, things that we need to battle for. But in the process, our focus becomes wrong in doing so. So, for example, like, you guys are aware of everything that has gone on in our country over the past year or so with the fight for social justice and equality. And people are, are battling, and it's an important thing, and a lot of believers have become passionate over making sure that people are treated as they should be, created in the image of God, and not discriminated against or looked down upon because their skin color might not be the same as yours. And a lot of people have become passionate in that fight. In the same way, abortion is a fight that a lot of people have become passionate about throughout the years. Political agendas, people battle over political agendas. And a lot of those things, we as believers need to be having a hand in that fight. But so often we get caught up in these things and forget that it's hearts that have to be changed. Listen, I think this is so, and this is not, I know this ain't like the most glamorous part of the message, and this might not be all that interesting, you might not be all that passionate about any of those things, but I feel like it needs to be said because you guys are being inundated with it, whether you realize it or not. Policies don't change, ethics don't change, morals don't change without the heart changing. And as believers, that's what we pursue. We don't go after the ethics, we don't have to go with politics, we don't have to go after agendas, we go after the hearts of the people who are behind those things. Because until their heart changes and is set towards God, you can fight and scream and yell and debate and argue and set up booths on campus and ask somebody to have a conversation with you all you want to. But until God changes their hearts, it won't matter. And so we battle in some of these arenas and the enemy and getting us involved in those gets us distracted from the good fight that we should be fighting. And then some of the arenas we're battling in are just plain stupid and pointless. Can I be honest? Most of, most of the arguments that you have throughout the course of your life are pointless and stupid. 
Most of them. Now, I'm not saying all of them. Now, I will say that in the context of marriage, all of your arguments are stupid and pointless. <laughs> I've never had a beneficial argument with my wife, ever. At no point in time. You can ask any of the married people across the back of the room the same thing. I promise you, they've got my back on this. They're all stupid. And they're all pointless. They are arguments, listen, they are arguments that will always be devoid of accomplishments. And the enemy will try to get you to engage in the same ones. Arguments that will always be devoid of accomplishments. Listen to what God's word has to say about it. This is an actual thing. 2 Timothy chapter 2. So in the same book, Paul says this in verse 23. I have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Titus chapter 3 verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, because remember we're fighting the right fight. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So much of our time is wasted fighting in wrong arenas over stupid, pointless arguments with people that aren't going to change their mind no matter how well you try to debate them. God's Word says have nothing to do with those foolish, ignorant controversies. They're worthless. They don't profit anything. And as a matter of fact, they only excel further arguments down the road. They breed quarrels. And then there's the worst arena of them all that we get tied up in sometimes. And that's the one where we fight each other. Ephesians 6, 12 it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There may be nothing more damaging to the building of God's kingdom than the battling between God's people. I have seen more damage done to the progression of the gospel and the growth of ministries inside God's house because of the battles that took place between believers. And God's word is clear. We do not battle against flesh and blood. Look to the person on your left. Look to the person on the right. Look to the person in front of you. Look to the person behind you. Some of y'all grew up in a real traditional church like I did, and you were never supposed to turn around, so that made you cringe a little bit right there. You're like, somewhere in the back of this room, my father's getting ready to drag me out of the sanctuary and give me a whipping. Hey, your battle isn't with those people. Your battle is against an enemy that is set on keeping the souls in this room and outside shrouded in darkness and condemned to an eternity separated from God. The right fight for us to be engaged in is the fight to bring light into darkness. The right fight for us to be engaged in is to go out in Jesus' name and rescue lost souls. The right fight for us to be involved in is to fight for truth and in defense of God's honor. To stop idly sitting by as the devil invades our family and our friends while we do nothing. Listen, men and women, we talked about how God brought us into a race 
of faith race. We're going to talk about that some later on in this message tonight. But he also called us into a battle against the spiritual forces where we go out as his builders and as his warriors to claim souls that are lost and in darkness, separated from God. I'm sick and tired of us just being fine with people going to hell. I'm tired of it not bothering us. And I've been as guilty of this as anybody, and I think that's why God's given me a renewed passion and a renewed fervor for it, because it's not okay. It's not okay to just sit idly by while the devil creeps into our homes and the people that we love most and pulls them into darkness with no intentions of ever letting them go. It's time that we as men and women of God suit up in our armor and go out and do battle with the enemy and the power and the authority of Jesus' name and start seeing lost souls be won for the glory of God. It's time to start fighting the right fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul speaking to Timothy in the first letter he wrote to him, he says, fight the good fight of faith. I told you earlier, it's a matter of eternity. It matters which fight you choose to engage yourself in. And if you choose to engage in the wrong one, it ultimately impacts people's eternities around you. But a surrendered life gets in the fight. Grab someone beside you and shake them if you have to and tell them, get in the fight. Get in the fight. Start a fight with somebody beside you if you have to. Tell them to get in the fight. Let's rise up, men and women of God, and fight the right fight. But a surrendered life also finishes its race. In the second part of verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. So as he continues reflecting on his life, he sees himself as having finished the race Jesus set before him. Remember his desire in Acts chapter 20, verse 24 last week? He said these words, if only I may finish my course. So remember Acts 20, we're at the beginning of Paul's life. 2 Timothy 4 tonight, we're at the end of Paul's life. Acts 20, only want to finish my course. 2 Timothy 4, I have ran my race. How satisfying that reflection must have been for Paul in that moment. I got duped into running cross country my freshman year in high school. Hated every minute of it. Any runners in the room? You don't have to be ashamed. If you like to run, go for it. More power to you. I hated cross country, hated every minute of it. I don't know why anyone, especially in their high school years, would want to sign up for a sport where you have to get up before the sun does to get on a bus and be freezing cold to run across an open field with 837 other people. Like, my goodness, everybody runs cross country. Like, it's crazy. And more than likely not win. I mean, the odds aren't good for you there. I hated every minute of it. I played baseball at UNA for four years. After I got done, I swore I would never take another quick step in my life. And so far, I've held true to that statement. But I committed to it, and I wasn't going to quit on it. I wasn't the most talented or skilled long-distance runner by any means, but I was determined to do one thing, and that was this, to finish every race I ran. At the end of every race, they would post the standings board. It's really humiliating for me most of the time. But they would post it, and I would go over and look at it, and inevitably there was always at least one runner who would post a time of DNF. You know what that means? Did not finish. 
whether it be because of injury or whether it be because, I think for most times, a willful bow out. Because it seemed like every race I ran, there was that one kid like over in the bushes and you know what's going on. Like, there's your DNF right there. I would think that every time I ran by somebody like that. A lot of times it was a willful bow out, but for whatever reason, they never crossed the finish line. Listen, over the past year especially, there are so many professing believers that are in jeopardy of posting a DNF. For whatever reason, they've stopped running. Jesus isn't asking you for be, to be the most skilled or talented runner. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even have podium positions that he's trying to fill. He just asks that you finish. That's it. Just finish the race that he puts you on. For this consideration, what happens to the souls that we stop short of? If we quit running with the gospel, what happens to the souls that we stop short of in our race? Maybe by the grace of God, he sends another faithful runner by to share the gospel with them. Or maybe you were it. And that person's eternity rests on whether or not you're going to run your race and cross the finish line. A surrendered life will push to finish its race because it realizes this is the only one we have. Now, I might not be the best. might not be the most talented, but Jesus didn't ask me to be. He just asked me to make a commitment to finish the race. As Paul looked upon his life, he says, I have finished my race. God isn't looking for the next Paul. God's not looking for the next biggest and greatest pastor to stand on a stage and have 1.3 million followers on their social media. God just wants your heart and where you're at to reach the people he's placed you around. Finish your race. The surrendered life also perseveres faithfully. In the last half of verse 7, Paul says, I've kept the faith. So he says, I fought the good fight. Finish my race, I have kept the faith, which you know isn't easy to do. To persevere, by definition, is to persist in an action in spite of facing great difficulty, opposition, and discouragement. So even in the midst of all that Paul faced in carrying the gospel of Jesus, city to city, town to town, he remained faithful to the calling that Jesus had given him. You know, there was a period of time a few months back when it seemed like every week you heard of someone abandoning their faith. That for whatever reason, they decided this Jesus stuff just wasn't for them anymore. And I want to I give you a, a caution right here. Actually, let's get on the same level for a minute. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. 
be careful that you don't have a pretend faith. Because a faith that pretends will never be a faith that perseveres. Because the moment things get very difficult or challenging or hard or unplanned or unexpected, that faith will crumble and fall apart underneath the weight of those situations or circumstances. I prayed this over you guys this week. I want you to have a faith that is built up and strengthened. One that perseveres to the point in which one day when you stand before God Almighty, you're able to hear, well done, good, and what? Good and faithful servant. That's what I want you guys to be able to hear one day. But if that's going to happen, if we're going to live out a faith that perseveres, it has to be two things. Now, I don't have these on the screen for you. This is just bonus material that God added to the message a little bit later this afternoon. This kind of faith, I'm going to tell you two key things to a faith that perseveres. Number one, it has to be foundational. Your faith has to be foundational, as in foundationally built on Jesus and Jesus alone. It can't be your family's faith. It can't be your friend's faith that you adopt for yourself. It's not how faith works. It has to be your own. And it must be built on Jesus Christ. That way, even if everything else is torn down in your life, you still have the foundation. In 2011, I was a senior at UNA when all the tornadoes ripped through our state. And we went to an area right outside of Hackleburg to help do some disaster relief. And house by house we walked by. And the only evidence that there ever was a house there was the concrete foundation slab on the ground. Other than that, you would have never even known there was a house that existed in that spot. Listen to me. Life may very well tear down everything about you and leave you with nothing. But if your foundation of faith is built upon Jesus, then after the storm passes, you can rebuild once again. A faith that perseveres is foundational on Christ and Christ alone. Listen, if you're here tonight and, and you think that just being here, if you think being in this place, you think being around faithful people, you think being around a faith-type building, being around a faith-type message with faith-type songs is going to be adequate to gain you admission into the kingdom of heaven, you're going to be in for a rude awakening one day. Your faith has to become your own. That's why I beg and plead with you guys each and every week, if you don't know Jesus, if you personally have never put your faith in Him, do it. Don't be deceived anymore. Beelzebub flying around the stage up here tonight. If he comes back again, he's fixing to get swatted too. I know y'all saw him up here. Second thing, 
faith that perseveres is operational. As in operationally working and active. Faith cannot lie dormant. It must be at work. James 2.17 says, Faith without works is dead. Faith must be at work. It must be active in your life. It has to be operational if you want it to persevere. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples, told them at one point in time when they couldn't cast out a demon that this man had brought his son to that was possessed. And they asked Jesus why we couldn't cast it out. And he says, oh, you of little faith. Now, he didn't say they didn't have faith. He pointed to the fact that it was just little. So faith is not a matter of presence as much as it is size in our life. And the way in which you grow your faith is to put it into action each and every day. A lot of y'all probably go to the gym. I like to go to the gym. Listen, you don't expect to see any results if you never actually pick up any of the weights. Just having a gym membership doesn't work. You've got to actually go to the gym. You've got to put in some work. You've got to do some curls. You've got to do some squats because we don't miss leg day, right? You've got to put in the work if you want to see the results. Hey, listen, just having a faith membership doesn't get it. You've got to put it in action. You've got to put it in the work because here's the trick to faith. It gets bigger and its presence becomes more strengthful in your life the more you use it, the more you activate it. The more you push into the presence of God and the more you push into a life surrendered to Him, the bigger and the stronger your faith will become in your life. A surrendered life perseveres faithfully. One last thing. And I've been waiting to get to this all night. So if you don't hear anything else, hear this part. A surrendered life, the one life that matters, pours out everything. Paul uses some interesting imagery to give a picture of how he visually saw his surrendered life being like in verse 6. It says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now, let me explain something. In the Old Testament days, they had a sacrificial system that they would use. Give me an assist here, Tucker. So the people would do different kind of sacrifices to offer unto God back in those days because they didn't have Jesus as their one true sacrifice. So there was a different system set in place. and They would do animal sacrifices to shed blood because without the shedding of blood, there can be no removal of sins. They would do food offerings from time to time. They would do grain offerings from time to time. And then they would do what was called a drink offering. And the way the drink offering worked is that the priest would come in and he would stand before the altar in the presence of God and whatever sacrifice may have been there, it could have been an animal sacrifice, could have been food, could have been grain, whatever they had already sacrificed on the altar, they would take a wine skin and they would uncork it and the priest would begin to pour out the wine across the altar over the sacrifice. And the whole purpose of doing so was that once the sacrifice was lit, it would let off an aroma that was pleasing to God. He would forgive the sins of the people. And as Paul gets to the end of his life, he begins to reflect on everything that he has done and the way in which he has lived his life out unto God. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And in Philippians chapter 2, he challenged those believers in the same way. He said, for my life is to be poured out as a drink offering unto the altar 
of God. I said, if y'all didn't get one thing tonight, I want them to get this, Matt. To pour your life out on the altar for Jesus. It's the essence of living a surrendered life. It's the one life that matters to take your life and what you have to offer, which is nothing other than what Christ has given, and to pour it out unto him to use it however he desires. The image of Paul saying this would have invoked such passion amongst the people. I mean, how could you not want to live your life for Jesus? Pour out on the altar. Everything that he says that I have to give, I gave it unto God. And at the end of his life, as he saw himself as being engaged with the one life that matters, and did you see what was noticeably absent from Paul's language? As he comes to an end of his life, the one thing that I couldn't help but notice that was absent, was so blatantly obvious, was regret. This man is at the end of his life. And as he speaks to these believers, poured out my life on the altar of God. And you don't hear one ounce of regret in his voice. You know, one of the not so pretty parts of my job is to be around death. You can ask any pastor this. So many times in those situations that someone's coming close to the end of their life, they begin to talk about the things that they regret. I regret having done this. I regret having acted in such a way. I regret not being here, doing this, saying that. Living surrendered during this life removes regret at the end of this life. Never once have I encountered a believer towards the end of their life who had given everything they had for Jesus ever regret doing so. You want to draw towards the end of your life and not have regrets? Pour everything out for Jesus. I promise you won't regret one bit of it. It's what enables us to live the one life that matters. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for His glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.